All right. Well, with that, I'm going to invite Rodney up here, and uh, we are going to uh, have some time of Q&A. Hopefully, my grandson will keep quiet, but uh, once he hears Rodney's voice, I don't know what to expect. So I'm still an elder, right? John didn't replace me? Is that... <laughs> well, I have to say, John actually passed the final test when he preached a couple of weeks ago. Uh, when he, when he uh, stated it so well about your, uh, your New Year's resolution. Do you hear about that? I'm not sure that I did. Oh, I think you heard about it. What we hear is that you've got a little bit extra cash these days. I'm not familiar with what you're talking well, about. Well, <laughs> he, he kind of, he spilled the beans on you. Why am I seated so low and you're so high what? there? I, <laughs> I got to adjust uh, I think this. I telling us something. I don't know. I don't know, but I got to adjust this. Anyway, um, there we go. I need a step ladder. I think I need a step ladder. You want me Can to you go down? <laughs> yeah, could you do that? There we go. Okay, now I feel a little bit better. Okay. <laughs> He told me that you had confessed to him that your New Year's resolution was not to waste money on a gym membership this year. Oh. Yeah. Oh. So that was, was the test. He passed it. We made him an elder. Oh, well, so, that's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> that's excellent. Well, I tell you, having extra money, the turkey grease. At first, I thought <laughs> talking turkey grease, uh, we're talking about not putting turkey grease down the sewer. Because you shouldn't do that, by the way. <laughs> turkey grease is not to go down the sewer. But this is different. This is this actually is different, yes. turkey and grease. grease. But, or yeah. turkey grace, whatever you want to yeah, call or it. Turkey yeah, turkey grace, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, the good news is I know that price seems high, but uh, home prices have gone up so much. You can sell your home <laughs> and have no problem going on that trip. So it's... No, I wouldn't. I, that, I, that I would not recommend. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, well, you can move in with Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, we um, want to uh, take some Q&A, uh, some questions today. We'll take some answers from you, too. That would be great as well. But uh, we asked for questions, and we received a lot. We received uh, 20-something questions in our email. And so we're not going to be able to answer all of them. So I, first of all, want to apologize for that. But we do want to answer as many as we can in, uh, in the half hour or so that we have remaining this morning. And by all means... Um, we will try as best as we can to answer a lot of the emails, maybe not all of them, uh, personally. If we don't get to talking about them today, we'll try with um, emailed responses for a lot of those questions, uh, except for some of them that were just bad questions. No. <laughs> but, uh, but So we'll respond. But we do want to address some, and some of the questions, a couple of them that came in, uh, was regarding eschatology, which makes sense since you're preaching through Revelation. So I thought we would start there. Uh, the first one was regarding the seven lampstands of the seven churches. And in fact, uh, the tour is going to visit uh, many of those uh, locations. Yeah. So the seven lampstands and the seven churches, have they all been removed? That was a warning to many. Um, is there some remnant of churches still remaining in those cities today? Yeah, that's a, a good question. Did uh, Christ remove the lampstand from those cities uh, uh, first, just a, a quick answer to that question is yes. In most of those cities, there is no church today. The exception is Smyrna in the city of Izmir, which is a large city, one of the largest cities in uh, Turkey today. 
in, in the city of Izmir, there is an evangelical church. And so there is a lampstand still there. But when you go to the other cities, uh, in, in some cases, there's not even any, any uh, village left. It is, all that's left is just uh, stone, dirt, and, and columns tipped over on their sides. So there, there isn't a lampstand left there. There isn't a population left there. And we can even see that even in Turkey in general. Like I said... Uh, the country of Turkey, within the history of the church, plays a very, very important role. Uh, you have the early church councils, uh, are all they all arise out of Turkey. So in those early years, there, was, there were many, many vibrant churches in the land of Turkey. Today, a uh, very, very small number of evangelicals. Uh, the land has, uh, the country has been devastated, obviously, by Islam, uh, the persecution or, or the oppor- opportunity to preach the gospel is severely restricted, but there are some churches. A couple of years ago, I actually had a, an opportunity to go and visit a church in North Turkey on the Black Sea coast and preach a little bit there. And it was very encouraging to see that now the pastor, who's a Turkish uh, pastor, was telling me that he had never seen in his 20 years of ministry the kind of hunger he's seeing today for the gospel among the Turkish people. So there are encouraging signs there. One uh, thing that I'll also add to that related to the lampstand in Ephesus, uh, there is a, uh, uh, we, we looked at it yesterday, or last Sunday, we looked at the warning that Jesus gives that if you don't repent, if you don't remember, repent and return to the works you did at first, the Lord would remove the lampstand. Uh, there's an, in, an interesting letter written by a church father by the name of Ignatius who writes around 10 years after John wrote his, uh, or John recorded the letter to the church in Ephesus. And it doesn't seem like Ignatius even was aware of the book of Revelation at that time. Remember, in those days, things didn't spread a lot, and Ignatius wasn't from Ephesus anyway. But Ignatius writes a letter to the church in Ephesus around 10 years later, seeming to indicate that the church there had changed dramatically because he actually affirms and, and commends the remarkable amount of, of devotion they had for the Lord Jesus. So, you know, we don't exactly know, but uh, there was perhaps some repentance that happened and the church survived in Ephesus for some time before uh, the Lord did eventually remove the lampstand. When Glenn and I got to visit uh, that area in the Izmir, which is modern-day Smyrna, uh, the tour guide we're talking with who's from that area was very proud to say, we are still, uh, we still have a church here. And he was still rejoicing in that fact, uh, it being the only one. All right, another question that was asked is, what are the key characteristics of the Antichrist that believers should be aware of? Especially, do, should we be thinking about these things as we vote for political leaders? Uh, yeah, the connection, <laughs> the connection between the Antichrist and political leaders. Uh, well, you do have that connection uh, specifically treated by Paul in Second Thessalonians two, where he talks about the man of lawlessness and what that man of lawlessness will do in Jerusalem. But in terms of ju- the concept of the Antichrist, how do we define the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? And there are some texts that I'll, I'll turn your attention to quickly here that provide for us 
a definition of, of the Antichrist. And that term, Antichrist, uh, is, is a term that is unique to the Apostle John. And so you first find a reference to the Antichrist in second, or 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 18, and he provides us with some information about the Antichrist. Children, it is the last hour. So John recognizes that, uh, you know, the, he too is impressed by the imminence of the Lord's return. The Lord could come at any time. And so he calls the age in which they live the last hour, and we certainly are still in that last hour. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that we are in the last hour. So John is already indicating that there is going to be one who is the Antichrist with a capital A, uh, but there are also many Antichrists who have already entered the world. And so that's one factor that we can draw from this, is that in this time in which we live, extending all the way from the apostolic era, uh, the, the church age, from the apostolic era until now, we are in this last hour, and there are many antichrists who have appeared and are appearing. Then we can go down to... Um, Verse 22 is the next reference there. Just a few verses later. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. So in that text, we can draw the conclusion that the Antichrist is literally that, Antichrist. The Antichrist is anyone who takes a, a, a position of authority and directly communicates teaching, doctrine, that is contrary to Christ. He denies, for example, that Jesus is the Messiah. So anyone who at a formal level, uh, anyone who asserts and seeks to influence others and propagate a teaching that Jesus is not the Christ, John defines as one of these antichrists. Moreover, he expands that and says, this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So first you have the errors that are related to Christology and the identity of the, the Messiah, that he is Jesus of, of Nazareth, the one born to the Virgin Mary. So any, any person who teaches that Jesus is not the Christ, that the Messiah is not Jesus, that there is not that fulfillment of all the messianic promises in the historical person of Jesus. That's an antichrist, but also one who expresses Trinitarian errors is an antichrist and, and denies the Father and the Son. And there, I would put in there, for example, Unitarians or Oneness Pentecostals. They are fulfilling the role of an antichrist because they deny the distinction between the Father and the Son. You can go then further uh, let me go into First uh, John chapter three. Uh, ex excuse me, First John chapter four, uh, verse three. Here's another reference to the Antichrist, and in this context, John is uh, commanding the believers, and, and these would be the same believers, roughly speaking, as the, as we're in those seven churches of Asia Minor. John, when he writes First John, is writing to 
the province of Asia. He was ministering in Asia, and so he's writing to these churches scattered throughout Asia Minor. This is what he says in, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets, that would be a synonym for the term antichrist. Many false prophets have gone into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit, and he's talking about teachers here, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there is a recognition of several things. Number one, the historical person of Jesus. Number two, connecting him to the prophesied Messiah, Christos, the the Messiah, that's that title, and that he has come in the flesh, a reference to the incarnation, that he is true God and true man. So everyone who is of the spirit of God confesses that Jesus Christ is true God and true man. He's come in the flesh and is from God. And, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus in this way is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist and which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So these antichrists are already affecting the churches in the apostolic era, and they continue to do so to today. One final reference to the antichrist is in 2 John, which follows this same progression that John started in 1 John. Uh, 2 John verse 7, right at kind of the heart of this short letter, uh, John writes this, For many deceivers have gone in, out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. So when we, we talk about the Antichrist, what we're primarily talking about is someone who has twisted the teachings of Scripture as it pertains to that culminating revelation, the, the person of Christ. And salvation is all dependent upon that. And so... The Antichrist attacks the person of Christ uh, in order to deceive the nations. So bringing that to today and and the issue of political leaders, uh, you know, in in the history of the book of Revelation, various interpreters have sought to try to connect the different, the beast, the you know, all kinds of of, of figures in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 19 with different historical figures. And, and, and we will just say this. You can't do that because chapters 4 to chapter uh, uh, 20 are all future. Uh, so we're not in that section yet. So you can't look at a, a human leader. You can't look at a pope. You can't look at Mussolini or Hitler and say, that's a fulfillment of this text in Revelation. Now, everything that we read of from chapter 4 in Revelation and on, except for some references back in history that is made in that section, but all the prophecies that are given in that section refer to what happens in the future after the church age. So we can't make connections between current leaders and, and figures within the book of Revelation. But we can say this, that it is the desire of the unregenerate human heart to follow the lies of his father, the devil, and whether in small ways or great ways to counter the person of Christ. So uh, any world leader 
who speaks with that kind of arrogance and, and pompous pride and does not acknowledge in humility that Jesus is Lord over all, in some way is, is exhibiting the same spirit of the Antichrist. And there are many Antichrists. Now, many political leaders don't get into theology. They're just arrogant and, and rebellious sinners. Uh, some will. And, and those uh, men are going to be judged exceedingly uh, more severely. Uh, you, you think of um, Herod in Acts chapter 12, who when the people said, this is the voice of a God, he accepted that. And God struck him down by, the, by worms while he was still alive. Worms miraculously appear in his gut and start to consume him. And he dies a very painful death. Now, that's an antichrist because he, he accepted the praise of the people. So any leader in that sense who does not acknowledge the fact that he has his authority from God and that Christ is Lord over all in some way is manifesting that spirit of the antichrist. All right. Well, we had another question kind of along the same line of uh, politics and voting, yeah, but very different angle. What is your thoughts of women governing in the political sphere? And it would be would it be wrong for a Christian to vote for a woman in politics? So let me give a shot at that, and you tell me how I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> well, Scripture is very clear about leadership in the home is the man. We know that Ephesians 5 is very clear on that. Colossians 3 makes that clear as well. Uh, scripture is also very clear on leadership in the church. Uh, Titus 1, which you read from today about the elder's uh, qualification, that he's a one-woman man. Uh, it also, in 1 Timothy 3, speaks to that. We don't have a parallel passage uh, for the political sphere. Uh, there's nothing that says uh, men must be leaders in the political sphere uh, in the New Testament. Um, so, in that, because that's the case, I don't think we can say categorically that that would be a wrong thing to do. Um, there are I think uh, times where that might even make sense. Uh, now, God has given, I believe, men, has made men in such a way to be leaders in the home, to be leaders in the church, and those same type of characteristics that he gave to men to lead in those areas will transfer over in the political sphere as well. Uh, so I think there is wisdom to look to that. But I would say if there's a choice between uh, a man who is uh, proclaiming policies that are very much uh, against God, against morality, against the scriptures, uh, versus a woman who's running who is much more conservative and, and views that are closer aligned to what scripture would teach, uh, I, I think we could vote for the woman uh, in that case without, uh, without um, any issue. Uh, that is how I view it. What do you think? Yeah, you do have a case in the Old Testament where you have Deborah who functions in a, as a political leader in, in many regards. And people would point to her and say, well, there's the archetype there for what we have today. Uh, and I would look at it differently and say Deborah's leadership over the, the, the tribes of Israel that were splintering at that time and were, were joining together with all the, the, the immoral practices of the Canaanites, which they had failed to drive out of the land or, or to... to uh, extinguish out of the land. Uh, Deborah is there because men weren't doing what they were supposed to do. 
and God will use women and does use women in this kind of leadership role. Um, and, and so I, in terms of Deborah, looking to her as the, the example that, okay, this is the paradigm then for women to, to have roles in, in the upper, uh, as, as civic leaders, I would say more, no, Deborah is an example of the disintegration of the fabric, of the morality, of the devotion, of the obedience of the tribes of, of Israel, of the men of, of Israel. And, and God will use women to humble men. And Deborah is an example of that. So what, what, what was that? Amen. You want to elaborate on that? Do you have some good illustrations? I mean, I, I don't know what that's like, so I... Yeah, I might not get dinner or lunch tonight. Uh, and we just had a, hey, by the way, uh, yesterday we had a wonderful uh, marriage refresher. We had six couples. Yeah, apparently you didn't learn as much as I had hoped so, yeah. uh, from that. I'm, I'm still learning. So uh, we, had, we had a wonderful time with those couples who came. Uh, we'll be, just a little plug I was going to make. Uh, obviously, I, I've, got to, I've got to go back. So we're going to. We're going to plan another one of these uh, probably in the next com- a couple of months, and we'll let you know more of that. And like uh, we've, we've noted and announced, uh, these are times when, in a small context, six to ten couples could come, and uh, the whole focus of, of the time, we went from, I think it was 8.30 to 2.30. Uh, we look at Scripture and talk a lot of practical application and, and see how we can encourage one another uh, to glorify God in, in marriage. So... I don't know, should I call you to that or me to that? We, you and I will both be there next time. So, okay, thank you. All right. Well, here's another question based off uh, what you taught last time in Revelation. And I mentioned to you this in person, Brad, but it's getting really hard to continue to make fun of you and mock you when you preach so well. So <laughs> if you could do something about that. But last time... Uh, in Revelation chapter 2, talking about the Ephesian church, and it was mentioned that uh, their fault was uh, leaving their first love, forgetting their first love. And the the remedy that is mentioned is to uh, to remember, repent, and return, and do the deeds you did at the beginning. Um, and there seems to be a connection between this losing the first love and doing deeds. What is the relationship between knowledge, actions, and emotions? And you have five minutes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the dangerous things that happens in theology is, is when theology is approached merely theoretical, that God has revealed his word to us for us to speculate, for us to argue and dispute. And then it, it remains in the level of, uh, or at the level of, of intellectual awareness. And that's, the, and that's, that's it. And that's a, a problem. God has not, however, given us his revelation for it just to remain at the level of intellectual, factual awareness. And so we have to recognize that theology, rightly understood, is always practical. It can never leave us neutral or ambivalent. It will always humble us. 
It will always encourage us. It will always correct us. And you go down that line, and it sounds like Second Timothy three seventeen. All Scripture, starting in verse sixteen, all Scripture is inspired, but it's also profitable for. And you look at all the different things that Scripture is profitable for, and it's all these personal elements: correction, teaching, instruction, training. So theology is always practical. So one of the ways that we can lose our devotion is when we get, we get excited or, or worked up over these theological debates, a lot of them happening on social media, and, and we just start to study for the sake of winning arguments. That's not why theology should be studied. Uh, if, if all it's contributing to is the next gotcha moment on social media, you've approached theology the wrong way. And in fact, I'd say you've approached it irreverently. It's God's word. It's a revelation of himself to us. And that will and must always have a personal impact on our understanding, on our will, on our affections. Uh, so we first have to approach knowledge correctly. Secondly, at the same time, uh, knowledge is crucial. You, you can't grow in your true devotion to the Lord apart from theology. Now, there are whole movements and large swaths of evangelicalism that that are devoted to this idea that it's all about emotions. And so you can go to some of these, uh, these services and they sing these very, very uh, superficial songs, you know, in fact, sometimes containing heresy, and people don't even care. It's all about the beat. It's all about the mood. It's all about the environment. And, and then they find themselves lifted up in their emotions and they think that's worship. That's devotion. I love Christ because I was at this experiential service where I cried or I was enthralled by some music and, and setting. That is absolutely incorrect as well. That love is going to be uh, founded upon knowledge. It's going to be founded on the truth. So you can't pit those two things against each other, knowledge and affection, instead Knowledge has to come first. We have to draw near, as Ecclesiastes 5, for those of you who are in Men of the Word on Wednesday, we looked at Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. You have to draw near uh, with a listening ear. That's crucial. Or what we heard this morning in Isaiah 55, as Yahweh beckons the listeners to come near and listen to me, and you will live. So we have to recognize our affection is going to grow when it's based on truth. But when you approach the truth, it's not merely for the sake of expanding your knowledge for your own good. Instead, it's because you, you're, you're, you recognize the, the profundity, the depth, and, and who it is that is at the center of this theology. Uh, and when you approach it that way... Uh, it's going to greatly help in the affection. Yeah, and I, and as I was thinking about this question as well, um, there are those who we see that say it's only matter what you what you believe, the knowledge part of it, and it doesn't matter how you live. And our pastor, uh, Pastor MacArthur, has rightly taught many times: No, your life will change by by what you know. You have you will necessarily have a changed life if you truly believe uh, that Jesus is Lord and that you're following him. Mm -hmm. 
But then there are others who would say, yeah, that's true that your life changes, but your emotions don't matter. That whether your emotions uh, love the Lord or not, you just know what's true and you obey. And you can ignore the emotions. Um, Now, while it's true that we don't wait for emotions to obey, it's not like, well, until I feel like it, I'm not going to obey God. Your emotions still are under the lordship of Christ. Uh, When we're given the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. Mm -hmm. It is all of us that needs to obey the Lord. Mm -hmm. So when you are, your emotion isn't there to obey. You know what? Still obey and then confess to God that your heart is not there and please God, work in my affections. Give me a greater love for you at the same time. Don't give yourself a pass that, no, it doesn't matter. It does matter to the Lord. And we want all of us to be the Lord's. What we think, what we understand is true, uh, what we do and how we feel on our love for him. So I, I think we need to look at all of those and never neglect any one of them. Amen. That's good. So, well, we got through four questions. <laughs> <laughs> not as much, uh, well, it's about what I thought we'd get through, but, uh, but it is great. And again, we want to answer some questions via email as well. And we always want to make ourselves available to interact, uh, after service always. And at other times too, it is a joy to be serving, uh, with all of you. Uh, and we, we are thankful for everyone. You want to close this in prayer? Sure. Let's close this in prayer. Lord, even as we've considered this last question, we're reminded of how far our, our thinking and our wills and our affections are from where they ought to be. But we're so thankful that our salvation does not depend on those things, that it depends on your promise, on your grace, on your love for us. And so as we wrap up our time here this morning, we, we come back to that and give you praise and and thanksgiving, uh, that you are such a great God, and you have saved us not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves, and have promised more than what we can even imagine in the life to come. So we confess that goodness, we revel in it, and we give you all the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.